Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. Good to see you all on this beautiful, beautiful morning. I want to start. Um, we're, we're working through a, the book of Deuteronomy this fall. It's the fifth and final book of our study of the five books of Moses, the law, also called the, the Pentateuch and the Torah. And we here at the beginning um, start with a history, but I want to I start out really with an example of, that, that contrasts uh, the ancient system of Israel and its law with our present system. And it's going to highlight something that Moses is going to address here at the beginning of his story, and excuse me, of these sermons. Um, Deuteronomy is a book of sermons. And so I want to look at our, our legal system, one small component, and I'm hoping this example makes a connection. It was a struggle in my mind, and I, I hope that uh, it's clear. So I want to look at what happens when um, someone is victimized by a perpetrator. So there's all kinds of various crimes that that could be. And so um, in, our, in our system, okay, whether it's a civil suit or a criminal suit, um, there is a, a plaintiff and there's a defendant, there's the perpetrator and there's the victim, if indeed there is guilt. Um, and if we, look at, if we look at damages, I want to look at damages. So in our system, if someone is found guilty, they are required to, to pay some sort of damages. Those damages are often economic, and so there might be some uh, lost income that they might have to pay for. There might be reparations. You know, if they stole something, they have to pay back its value. Uh, those could also be punitive damages, so there's some sort of punishment. And so um, there's going to be not just a repayment of what was stolen, but maybe some additional as a form of punishment and as a deterrent for future, for future incidents. Um, but in our system, we also have damages that come as a consequence of, of reputation or humiliation. And those damages are intended to restore a sense of dignity, sense of dignity to the, sense of dignity to the person that was violated and victimized. In ancient Israel, they had um, similar consequences for the perpetrator. There were economic damages that they would have to pay. If they stole a goat, they'd have to repay the goat. But then there was also punitive damages where they would have to pay fourfold back. Again, it's a deterrent. It's a form of punishment. But ancient Israel didn't have damages to reputation. They didn't have damages to cover humiliation. They didn't have damages to recover dignity. And so this seems like a small thing, but if you think about it, it's really quite significant. If you ask the question, why does our legal system cover damages for reputation or humiliation and to restore dignity, but ancient Israel's didn't? It's because under the system of law that God gave them, dignity was not something that had to be restored. Uh, somebody's reputation was not something that had to be restored or could even be restored by paying money. Because their, their sense of identity, their sense of who they were as a person, 
was not defined by people taking advantage of them, by people committing criminal offenses against them. That, it, wasn't, it wasn't, those kinds of things couldn't damage how the people of Israel saw themselves because they were children of God. They could be victims and children of God and still maintain the honor and dignity of being a child of God, a, a citizen of the nation of Israel called out for God's eternal purposes. And so our system highlights, I think, what we as a culture value in terms of what can restore our dignity, what can restore our reputation, what can cover over humiliation. And our legal system points out to the fact that it's money, or at least a significant part of it. And so if you think of, if you think of something bad happening to you and that needs to be redeemed, okay? Ancient, ancient Israel had a way of being redeemed, but it wasn't through money. In our system, it's money, or reconciled, made peace with, or dignity restored. Our system answers those questions about what can redeem, what can restore, what can reconcile as a financial transaction. Ancient Israel understood that reconciliation and redemption and the restoration of dignity wasn't financial. It was something that was given to them by God as always a reality. I think if we were to ask ourselves, just if we were to, just, I mean, obviously, if you're a victim and you're going to be awarded money, that's great. Money helps a lot of things. But does, if we were to ask ourselves, does it really restore dignity? Does it really redeem? Does it really reconcile? Can it, can it solve those things that are of a spiritual nature? Our sense of self, how, how others view us. I think we would all have to agree that money doesn't do that. Now, if we broaden this little incident of a, of, of, a, you know, of a crime and the justice system, if we broaden that little incident to our entire lives, so it's not a single story of injustice, but a whole life where we have pasts, pasts where people have um, hurt us, people have wronged us, we have been victims, but also pasts where we have done wrong, where we have perpetrated offenses against others, where we have committed evils against others, all right? Let's take that small thing and blow it up into our whole lives. So the, the, the question then is, how do we find redemption? How do we find reconciliation? How do we build self-worth? How do we establish a sense of dignity. So we want to take that single incident of injustice and see our whole lives as a type of story, a story like that. Scholars see that, that we have to see our lives as a story where we're redeeming our pasts, where there's hope for reconciliation and peace and a stronger sense of dignity for our future, regardless of our past. One, one scholar says this, we want our lives to have meaning or weight or substance or to grow towards some fullness. This means our whole lives. 
We want the future to redeem the past, to make it part of a story which has a sense of purpose, to take it up in a meaningful unity. And that's what really justice is. So when, when God says he wants his people to be known for righteousness and justice, he wants his people, people to be known for um, lives and works that are redeeming what has gone wrong. Wrong in their own lives, wrong in the lives of other people, wrongs that have been done to themselves, wrong that they've committed. We want to see our lives as this redeeming story, a story that will find meaning and value and purpose and, and peace and redemption and all of these things. One other scholar says that to live with the past as unredeemable is to mutilate ourselves in that we, we can't, if we, if we don't see how we can make our lives as a unified whole, if we don't see how we can make peace with our past and how it's connected to the future and how our present can move forward to that redeemed future, that peaceful future, if we, if we can't see how that's going to happen, he says we mutilate ourselves because we, we see our lives in these disjointed, torn apart pieces. And so we, we, as human beings, need to have an understanding of our past. We need to have a hope for the future and a way to live now so that the future is what we realize, a future that we hope will redeem and bring, make sense and bring peace to our past. And Moses understood this, and the Spirit of God understood this, because what Moses does here at the beginning of Deuteronomy is he starts out with a story of Israel's past to this point. The first three chapters, it's a narration of essentially the beginning of Exodus up through the book of Numbers. This is the second generation of Israel. This is the children of the first generation. The first generation spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, all right? And these children have all seen their parents and grandparents die. And here they are in the same wilderness that they've been wandering around in. The word Deuteronomy means um, Deuteronomos. It's Greek. It's a Greek term. It's in all of our Bibles, all right? Deuteronomy. What in the world does that mean? It means second law. Deutero is second or two. Nomos is law. It's the second giving of the law. The first giving of the law was all of the, the laws and the rules that we have been reading about, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The first generation that received those laws is dead. The second generation is here. Moses is now going to reiterate all of these laws. But before he gets into this way of life for the people of Israel, he has to he has to help them see and interpret their past and give them hope for a future. So this week, we're going to look at the past and connect it to how we need to look at our pasts. Next week is the present, how we orient ourselves to, to experience the redemption of our past and to, to gear us towards the future. And then the third week is going to be what does it mean to have a vision of the future that guides, that guides our present and redeems our past. And so... This passage here in chapter 4, so he's just completed this narration, and he says this, ask of the days that are past. This is in the reading. Ask of the days that are past. And he has several questions that he wants them to address 
concerning their past. One, has such a great thing as this ever happened or was ever heard of? Has any people ever heard the voice of God speaking out of fire? Has any God attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation as God did of you? And then he makes a series of statements. To you, these things were shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. And so the big idea for this whole series is that we would deepen in our knowledge and fear of God. So these things were shown that you might know that Yahweh, the great I am, is God and that there is none like him. He loved your fathers and chose their offspring and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out nations before you to bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance. You shall keep his statutes and commandments that it may go well with you and your children after you and that your days will be prolonged in the land that Yahweh is giving you for all time. So, I think he's doing three things here in these questions. Ask these things of your past and recognize that these things are true. First of all, I think that Moses is expanding their vision of God and their their unique relationship with him. Moses, there is no God that has ever done what Yahweh God has done for you. Have you ever heard of it? Obviously, that's a rhetorical question. No, the answer is no. There is no God that has done this. There is no story of any God that has ever worked his great power and love for a people. So they are unique. They are unique in the eyes of the creator God. And he's also then establishing their identity. And their identity is not the consequence of what people have done to them. Their identity is not a consequence of what, of what they have done to others, sins committed against them, sins that they've committed. Their identity is established in works of God's power toward them. Here's who you are, Israel, and it's because God has done these things. He called them out of idolatry. They didn't choose a life out of idolatry. God called them out of idolatry. God then made promises to them as a people. All of these things were unconditional. And then God kept his promises through demonstrations of his power that are beyond comprehension and were miraculous. God did those things, and that gave them a sense of identity and who they were as a people. That was what defined them, what God had done not what they or others had done. The third thing he does is he creates a unifying narrative. He's gone through three chapters. Here's your past, and it's mostly, mostly, uh, here's your past, here's what God has done, and here's how you have failed. That's the story. Here's what God has done, and here's how you have failed. But God has not given up. So he's given them a narrative, but in the narrative, he also paints this future. Here is the hope that you have, Israel, not because of anything you've done, but because what God has done for you. And so that story then was to uh, set as the foundation in the minds and hearts of the nation of Israel, this second generation, before they heard these sermons. All right? They needed to understand 
the grace of God toward them before they could follow all of these laws. Right? We see the same thing uh, in the teachings of, of Jesus Christ and in the teachings of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and all the, all the New Testament teachings. First comes grace. Here's what God has done. And if we hear about what God has done, it should grow our knowledge of him, it should grow our fear of him, it should grow our love for him, because he has done these things um, simply because of his love. The, the reading said this morning that because God loved your forefathers, which means that he took action that was caring for them. He took action that benefited them. God loved them. Okay, so if we see how God has loved us, we're then compelled by the heart to obey him. Not to earn his favor, but because the favor's already been given in an undeserved way. That's grace. That's grace. And so that's the narrative that, that Moses wants to have. And so what about us? What about us? This is not just Israel's story. It's also our story. You know, I think I heard Lawrence explaining this morning as I was greeting uh, some of the benefits of the classes that we have. I think he was describing the message of the Bible class. The great benefit of the message of the Bible class is that you get the entire story of the Bible um, in a fairly clear and accessible way. It makes sense of the, the 66 books. It's a, obviously the Bible is a large body of text. Right? It makes sense. I mean, within the first session, you'll step back and say, it's never been this clear before. It's never been this clear before. And here's why it's so important. If the story of Israel is awful, also our story, <clears throat> if we don't know the story of Israel, we really aren't going to know our story. So how is it our story? Well, God's promises to Abraham was not just for Abraham and his family. It wasn't just for the nation of Israel. It was also for the nations. Through you, I will bless the nations of the world. He makes this promise to King David. So King David is the ancestor to this promised child that, was, that, was, that God said would bring life to all creation. He would conquer death and bring life. And then David hears how God is going to execute his promises through his family. And David steps back and says this, God, what is my household? What is my family? But I recognize it's not just the story for my family. And he says, this is the story for all humanity. Abraham understood that. David understood that. God is calling us all of humanity out of idolatry. God is promising to deliver us from our enslaving pasts. And God is promising us future redemption and freedom and reconciliation and glory. But like ancient Israel, here on the, the border of the promised land, we also have to start with our pasts. We also have to start with a lens to interpret our past so our, 
our pasts don't continue to define us. If Israel couldn't get beyond its past of being failures in the eyes of God, of a, of a, of a compromised conscience, they weren't going to make it in the future. So there's two things that I think that prevent us from getting past our pasts. Two things that, that hinder us and our pasts keep enslaving us. Our pasts keep dragging us back. One, we hide and run from our pasts. This is one thing that we do. So when, we, when, when our pasts come up or when, we are, when things are called to memory or if we're reminded of them, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to address it. We run away. And there are several reasons for this, to not really address our pasts. We're stuck in the pain, regardless of whether it's, it's because of us or whether it's because of others. We're stuck in the pain, and to recall the past, to deal with our past, oftentimes is going to continue to relive it or make it even worse. And who wants to just stay in that pain? We're okay with it. We're okay with it coming up and reminding us. We're okay with running away and protecting ourselves from circumstances that remind us. I think also because we get stuck in the guilt. Sometimes we feel guilty about wrongs that others have committed against us because what happens in our consciences and with our evil flesh and with the forces of darkness that influence us. We, oft, we, we will work ourselves to believe that we were responsible for the wrongs that others committed against us. I could have done this. I could have done that to prevent it. And we also get stuck in the guilt of our own sin, things that we've done wrong. We can't get past the fact of acknowledging it, knowing it, and taking responsibility for it. It hurts, it hurts too much. It hurts too much to continue in the pain. It hurts too much to admit our guilt and to deal with it squarely and to think sober-mindedly about it. I think we can also get stuck in the shame. Shame is the, is the low self-worth that comes as a consequence of our sense of guilt. And so all of these things come up when we're faced with our past. It, it hurts. I'm feeling guilty. And I'm feeling shame. Why would I want to do anything that heightens those? And so we keep hiding them. And we keep trying to write a story of our lives where we don't have to think about them anymore. The problem is, is that that just continues to use this scholar's phrase. It just continues, we, we just keep mutilating our lives. We keep trying to separate our present and our future, what we can maybe make it from our past because it's too difficult to address. That's one way, running and hiding. The second thing is that some of us can't stop running back to our pasts. We want to keep reliving the glory days. This is when things were great. 
This is when I was honored. This is when I was special. But something happened along the way. Either somebody committed a sin against me or somehow undermined or destroyed me or I did something that destroyed myself. And so we keep those glory days in our minds as what we want to get back to. So we never move on. We think that the greatest life we can have is the life we've already lived, and we just have to somehow get back there. There's a, a, a poet, his name is James Hetfield, and he has a poem called The Memory Remains. And there's this repeated stanza, fortune, fame, mirror, vain, gone insane, but the memory remains. And so there's this person that has lived a life of fortune, they've lived a life of fame, and they keep looking at this mirror and seeing themselves as this famous, honorable, rich person. It's vanity, which means it doesn't get anywhere. It's chasing after the wind, as the author of Ecclesiastes would say. And it creates insanity. It creates mental stress and trauma, depression and anxiety. Why? Because we can never seem to get back to those glory days. But that memory, that memory remains. We, we remember it, we glory in it, we identify with it, and we see that as our salvation. Those are the two things that we do, I think, in regard to our pasts. So what does God have for us, and how does Israel's story help us? Well, the climax of Israel's story is, is the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's been the main point of their story since the beginning of the book of Genesis. And again, it's not just the story of Israel, it's the story of all humanity. Man and woman in the garden, when God made the promise to woman that she would give birth to a child that would destroy the serpent, thus destroying death and bring life to all things, they were prototypical male and prototypical female. It was man and woman, husband and wife. They didn't have personal names yet. That was the promise to all humanity. Jesus Christ is that climax. He's the one that when, when Lamech, the father of Noah, uh, he had a son, he, said, he named him Noah, perhaps this is the man who will save us from all of our toil. Our aspirations to be delivered from our lives. He's the promised prophet that would be like Moses, which we'll see at the end of Deuteronomy. He's the promised king of the, of, the, of, the, of the man Judah that God said the scepter will never leave your hand. He's the promised seed of David that will sit on the throne of Israel forever. So, so Jesus Christ is the climax of the story, all of our stories. So how does, how does Jesus Christ help us get past being stuck in our pasts? Well, the first thing is that we have to acknowledge that whether we are running and hiding from our pasts or whether we're trying to relive it, we're enslaved. We're enslaved to those pasts. And that we are powerless. We, we got ourselves in this mess we're not gonna be able to get ourselves out. And the more we try, the more we will fail. So like Israel, Israel had to be reminded, 
It is the power of the almighty Yahweh God that delivered you, that redeemed you. It is the power of God that has given you an identity as a people. It is the power of God that has reconciled you, has brought you peace. There has to be a recognition that the power of God is what has to come into our lives and bring what we're looking for. Money is not going to do it. The actions of people, including ourselves, is not going to do it. Jesus took on the pain, okay, so we don't want to keep reliving the pain. If we, if we bring up our past to deal with it, it brings up the hurt, we run away. What Jesus did, he looked pain in the face. He was born and then increasingly knew that he was this promised child from the Old Testament scriptures. He increasingly knew that he was born to die. And he didn't run away from that pain. He ran toward it. He ran toward it. And the, the class I'm leading this, this fall is, is Luke-Acts. Luke-Acts is the narrative in the New Testament that connects the old and the new. It's the story of Jesus and how he fulfilled the old. It's the story of Jesus and what he's redoing to redeem and restore the new. It's the story of Jesus and his journey to face the pain. He faced the pain and he faced the guilt. He, he took on our guilt. So those feelings that we have, so we, you know, we understand that what Jesus has forgiven our sins. Jesus also took the guilt of our sins. One of the types of offerings in the Old Testament law is the guilt offering. The, the guilt, the sense of us doing wrong, Jesus also took on. So not only did Jesus take on the pain of crucifixion, he also took on the sense of guilt for all of the sins of the world. And he took on the shame. Hebrews says that Jesus looked at the cross and scorned its shame. He held it in contempt. He disdained it. He didn't let, him he didn't let the shame control him. It didn't push him away. It, gave, it, 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 it actually propelled him. I am going to overcome this. The pain, the guilt, and the shame. And then he rose from the dead. He went through the pain. He didn't run away from it. He went through the guilt and didn't run away from it. He went through the shame and didn't run away from it. And you know what? It didn't kill him. Well, it did kill him. It did kill him. But then he rose from the dead. He overcame it with an eternal life to never die again. To never die again. The gospel says that if we believe in Jesus Christ's work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, if we believe that the work that Jesus did took on mine. If we believe that, if we believe that Jesus' death and resurrection was enough and, and that he was bearing the weight of my pain, 
my guilt, my shame on his shoulder. If, if he did that, if I believe that, it becomes true for me. It becomes true for us. And then his spirit, the same spirit that rose from the dead, gives life, life to us. One of the prayers that we see in the book of Ephesians is that I, I pray that you would recognize the power of God. We need the power of God. I pray that you would recognize and understand and deepen in the power of God that is at work in you, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. So do I believe that the power of God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, the same power that now can live in me through his Holy Spirit, is that enough to see me through the pain and the guilt and the shame? Our emotions and feelings around our past are hard and deep and they have been with us a long time and it's hard to believe that a profound and simple statement such as jesus did this for us it's hard to believe that it actually has that power but that is the message of the gospel and it seems like foolishness it seems like foolishness and that's the that's the uh, stumbling block to the gospel how could how could something so foolish provide so much power? Well, how does Jesus help us move on from past glory? We have to acknowledge that our past glories and the future dreams that we have based upon those past glories are really weak. They're lame. They're not really glory. C.S. Lewis has a, has a comment. I can't remember the exact quote. He said, you know, we have these visions of glory. And, and really what it is, it's like, it's like somebody being satisfied to play in the mud puddles in the street compared to being on a, like a beach in the Caribbean with beautiful blue oceans. We, we are satisfied with these mud puddles. That's C.S. Lewis. That's a metaphor that C.S. Lewis had, if that's helpful. The Bible teaches that Christ in us, okay, the Spirit of Christ that lives in us, the Holy Spirit that's given to us upon our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, Christ in us is the hope of glory. The hope of glory. It's, it, the Bible teaches that when Christ is revealed, we will also be revealed with him in glory. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all things in heaven on earth, the possessor and owner of all things in heaven on earth, we're going to share in his glory. We are going to share in his glory. And it's really a glory that is beyond description and incomprehensible and unfathomable in so many ways. And so the, the past glories that we have lived, we're able to see, we experienced, we can describe them, we can paint them, we can put them in a box it's so limited compared to the future glory that awaits us in Christ, which is beyond our comprehension to even imagine. Paul says, the, the sufferings I experience now um, do not compare with the weight. They are light and momentary compared to the weight of eternal glory that awaits us. So to the extent that you are suffering and in pain now, that light and momentary to the extent of the great glories that await us. So Israel, Israel's story was not over here at the, at the, in the plains of Moab. 
on the, the border of the, of the promised land. Their story wasn't over when Moses delivered that initial series of sermons and this, this narrative of their past and potential future. When Israel received the Bible, okay, because at this point, we're just reading about the history. It took centuries for the Israel's Bible to be formed, where they are reading it as a community. They're in exile in Babylon, and they're reading these stories. Their story wasn't over then. They're still waiting for the Messiah. And even when Jesus came and died and resurrected and ascended up to the right hand of the Father, the story wasn't over. And here we are reading it. Our story is not over. We are still waiting for the for God's promises to be fulfilled, for the gospel to go to the nations, and for Jesus Christ to return to claim his eternal throne. So God is inviting everybody, all of us, to still participate in his story. And it's not just getting saved. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't believe that Christ has died to take on your pain, your guilt, and your shame, and then resurrected to show that he has the power to overcome those things, if you don't believe that those things are true for you, then the invite is for you today to believe in that message of Christ's ability in power to deliver, to redeem, to reconcile. All of the money and the dignity that our, that our world can put on you cannot do those, cannot do those things. But even if you have known Jesus Christ, we can't just sit because the, the work that God is doing in us, in renewing us, in transforming us, is a constant redeeming and reconciling and restoring of our pasts and creating a future that we would have never imagined. And so the invite is still here. Share in the story of God in the life of Jesus Christ. And that is something that all of us need to do at all times. In Jesus' name, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for, thank you for just the example of Moses here in, in narrating this story and, and showing the value of, of, of knowing our story, of, of knowing our pasts, of bringing up our pasts, of, of, of the gospel that can make sense of them and bring us out of them. God, we pray that uh, as, a, as a church you would strengthen us in, in the story that you have for us through Jesus Christ, that we would increasingly experience the, the redeeming and reconciling power of God in us through the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.